Well, please open your Bibles with me to John chapter 6, and we'll be reading from verses 49 through 58. John 6, 49 to 58. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Father, we are grateful for your perfect word. We pray that you would give us substantial illumination of mind to understand it as you have intended it, not as we might choose to interpret it on our own, but that we might rest really to lean completely, to trust entirely upon the Holy Spirit's interpretation, that we might honor you by adhering to what you have intended for us to know and understand and to live in such a way that would reflect your kindness to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week in verses 41 to 48 of chapter 6, Jesus exposed the false conversion of those who grumble against him so that all who will actually believe in him will have eternal life. And so there's this great contrast between the life of the one who rests in Christ and the one who doesn't. And that contrast is often marked by a willingness to complain. The grumbler in the Old Testament was given a death sentence. He brought his own death sentence upon himself because in his lack of willingness to trust the Lord, he found himself more willing to trust in himself. And so, as he did, he was exposed for that distrust in the Lord. And how is that exposed? It's so often exposed in a willingness to complain. You know, the, the complaint factory is the illustration we used last week, that person who just seems to be intrinsically gifted to find something negative in everything. And that person, of course, is proven ultimately to be an unbeliever. Jesus confronts the Jews in their grumbling. Their grumbling, their complaining is uh, what he really challenges them about. Verse 41, as you remember from last week, says, So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. He's using an illustration. He's using a metaphor. And so in the use of that metaphor, they want to do similar to what Nicodemus did, and that is to hyper-analyze the illustration. 
rather than looking for the truth behind the illustration. Point number one last week was whoever grumbles against the character of God does not know God. And we found the height, the depth, the the power of God's character being revealed in verse 37 when Jesus said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. We said that the antecedent of the word whoever is those that the Father gives to me. And so this heightens our awareness of the sovereignty of God, but at the same time, it does nothing to belittle the significance of man's responsibility. And so you and I are to call people to come to Jesus, but we must help them understand who the true Jesus is. So often, people, when they're first exposed to this reality of God's sovereignty over their lives in every area, they not only wrestle with it, they'll fight against it, and they'll fight hard. And uh, it eventually, if they're honest, becomes a wrestling match against Scripture. Not someone's teaching, it's just the basic bare bones of the reality of the Scripture that God is, in fact, sovereign. The Jews in our text, as we mentioned last time, really displayed their heritage. They displayed the same attitude the same hell-bent, incessant complaint attitude of their fathers, who in Exodus 16.2, it says, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger, despite the fact that God had met all of their needs with perfect timing. They wanted what they had had before, even though they were in prison. It's, it's easy to forget what prison was like. Is it not? I mean, I don't know that any of you have been in prison, but you've certainly been in spiritual prison, and you may have forgotten how awful that was, the legalistic idea that you've got to perform, the legalistic idea, really the self-righteous idea that you have to and even can measure up. Maybe you experienced that when you were first exposed to some group of religious people, whether a, you know, a faithful group or an unfaithful group or somewhere in between. You probably had this idea that you had to dress your best, you had to act your best, you had to curtail your speech, you know, and maybe you still have some inclination to do that simply for the sake of ensuring that your appearance is what it needs to be in order for people to approve of you. See, that's a very religious, very legalistic, self-righteous environment that you may have found yourself in. But the tendency, the natural tendency for most people is to do that anyway. So combine that natural tendency with a context like that, and you got big trouble. you got big, big trouble because you think that you can perform, you choose to perform, you do your best to polish yourself so everybody will pat you on the head, and then you go home and you know, put your hair down and act like who you really are. Not with the gospel. The gospel exposes who you really are. And if you love Christ and you're surrounded by people who love Christ and you are thankful for what he has accomplished, you let your hair down in front of them and you trust the Lord to use them to see the reality of who you are. We're all in this truly together and we can say, praise God for redemption. Praise God for forgiveness. Praise God that he's changing me. Praise God that I don't hide my sin. I expose my sin. I find compassion by confessing my sin. And I 
experience the prosperity of the spiritual kindness that the Lord shows to those who, in fact, do the same. But not the Jews. The Jews were grumbling over this illustration. Why? Because they hated the truth behind the illustration. It wasn't the illustration that was the real issue. It's just easy to target the illustration because it's a severe illustration. Right? It's drastic. Eating flesh? It's easy for them to attack that rather than go on some theological hunt to destroy the theology behind the illustration. Let's just deal with the illustration. That's easy to attack. And then they show their, their folly by doing so. Verse 42 says, They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, You know, just stop. Do not grumble among yourselves. Uh, this happens a handful of times throughout the scripture where Jesus addresses something being spoken of by people who had no idea that he heard them. So he saves a lot of time by exercising his omniscience and addressing what they're saying and sometimes what they're thinking. So our first point last week was whoever grumbles against the character of God does not know God. It's not just a matter of being an incessant grumbler. It's this specific targeted grumbling that regularly attacks the character of God, and maybe even increasingly as there is an increasing awareness of the character of God. Maybe you've been there, but certainly if God has saved you, you've, you've been softened the more you have become aware of the character of God. It's, it's daunting at first. It's nearly debilitating. Sometimes it is debilitating. Oh, my word. Is, how is it possible that God is, in fact, sovereign over all the details? You're knocked over by that, but eventually you become committed to that truth because it's soothing. It's comforting. It brings you great joy. Well, the second point last week was whoever trusts in the character of God has eternal life in him. And see, there's this time in the balance, so to speak, between those two realities, right? When you were first made aware of the reality of the character of God, maybe you had been in the church for many years and you felt like you had enough cumulative education from the Bible that what you're reading now couldn't possibly be true. But you see it. <laughs> and you might have many times gone back to it saying this just can't be right. Because so often you've sat under watered down cotton candy teaching that bypasses the hard truths of the character of God simply to make you feel better. And it was very effective. You went on your way. You left a worship service not even a little bit troubled about your character, about your conduct about your relationships, not even a little bit concerned, just feeling great because you, you know, man, that pastor just made me feel great today. Our role, yours, as much as mine, is to deliver truth to one another with love, with grace, with compassion, and with excitement, with encouragement, knowing that when we know the truth about ourselves, juxtaposed to the truth about Christ and what he has accomplished, we are overjoyed. As I said, point two is whoever trusts in the character of God has eternal life in him. And we pulled that from this section of John 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You say, I didn't know that. 
when I first got saved. That's okay. And that's actually probably kind of normal, at least in our day. Sadly, but you know, it's the reality that so few pastors these days are preaching the truth about God's sovereignty and salvation. It's written in the prophets, verse 45 says, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. He's talking about himself. I've been with the Father. I am God with the Father. I'm the Son of God. I am Yahweh. I come from heaven. I'm the bread of heaven. I will raise him up on the last day who the Father gives to me. You can be certain about that. It's like basic math, really. Two plus two equals four is no more certain than the reality that all that the Father gives to the Son will come unto him. So who gets the glory? God gets the glory. You get none. You don't want it. You don't want the glory. If you do want the glory, you're in a bad way. And we all slip into that from time to time. But when we're thinking rightly about this, we're pleased to give God the glory John 14, 7, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Sounds noble, doesn't it? Show us the Father, Lord, and that'll be enough for us. Jesus rebukes him. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? See, that's you slipping into your Arminianism and me. We want more. Lord, show us more. Lord, just make me feel better. Lord, just take my sin away. Man, I felt that way yesterday. I'll just be honest with you. <laughs> Lord, just, just change me. You know, you ever feel that way? But see, God does a work in us that's completed on the cross that's manifested over time. It's manifested over time in your likeness to Christ when you can be honest about yourself rather than buying the the satanic self-esteem idea you say but i but i felt really good about myself when i try to cultivate self-esteem how many of you watched the wedding anybody maybe recorded oh good not many of you <laughs> i i kind of got up i wasn't going to watch it i had no idea it was going to be on and there it is i watched it and, you know, if you, if you haven't, and don't, don't watch it, don't waste your time. But the guy was so excited, the, you know, the preacher or whatever, the bishop, and when he spoke, he sounded like he knew what he was talking about. And he started talking about love. And it turned the, the royal court on their ear. They're not used to this. You know, if everything's supposed to be stiff and quiet, nobody gets excited. And you can tell, you know, the queen's a little uncomfortable. You see that? Camilla, she's got that hat over her face, you know. And, and so he, it's, it seems like, oh, he's brave. He's going to give a message that, you know, really turns the whole Church of England on their ear. Well, it might have, but it wasn't the gospel. He completely missed the gospel. And you can say, well, he didn't say he was sharing the gospel, no, you're right. If you think that, he didn't say he was sharing the gospel. But, but let me just tell you, if i got an audience of multiple millions of people, the one thing I'm going to be sure I do is share the gospel. I'm not going to miss that. But he did, and he gave this self-esteem message, and he 
totally abused Matthew 22, pointing out that we are called to love the Father with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love others. Oh, and by the way, you're supposed to love yourself. Is that what the passage says? No, it assumes that in your sin you do love yourself, and it commands you to love others. Somebody needed to share the gospel. I mean, all the attention with the, you know, the royal wedding, and so many people are watching and excited about it, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, being excited about the, the dress, whatever. You know, the dresses. There's two dresses. Wow, that's amazing, two dresses. The carriages, you know, the Bentleys that are, I don't know. Nothing wrong with all that. But it's, it's a great opportunity for you and I to capitalize on what the world provides as an opportunity to address the real gospel. I encourage you to have conversations about this with people that you know that are just all excited about the wedding. Why not? Why not? Why not be excited with them about some of the superficial issues that are not a big deal one way or the other? And then why not look for that as an opportunity to talk about how the guy missed the gospel? He provided false hope. So important that you and I understand and embrace the true Savior and that we're willing to be satisfied in him. You know, you're guilty, I'm guilty. Philip wasn't satisfied in the presence of Christ. You know, Lord, do one more thing and it'll be enough. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And you memorize that passage for today. Truly, truly, I tell you, whoever believes has eternal life. You can take that to the spiritual bank, right? That's a true statement. Whoever believes has eternal life. Now, let's think this through. There are people who believe some things but do not have eternal life. So what's critical about this statement, this indicative? It's critical that you and I understand what the object of that belief is. He's not saying whoever believes something has eternal life. What's he talking about? He's talking about the true character of God. The context is this metaphor. He is the bread of life. And so it's hard to pinpoint the theme here. It's not hard to pinpoint the theme of John, the, whole, the overarching theme, John 20, 31. But it's hard here in this context because where is the theme? It's really the whole chapter. It's this whole metaphor that's stretched out over the whole chapter regarding the bread of life. And what's the point of him calling himself bread? What's the point of that? What do you think that is? I mean, somebody tell me. I'm asking a real question, looking for an answer here. Anybody? Sustenance, meaning how am I going to get that sustenance? What do I do? A little louder? Believe, okay. And, and what, if we stick with the metaphor, what do I do? You eat. You eat. And so for the Jew, it was really easy to say, blasphemy. What is he saying? First of all, he's the carpenter's son. In addition, that's crazy. It's crazy to think like that. Well, this morning we'll see the contrast between those who feed on Jesus and those who do not. Just that terminology itself should be riveting for every one of us. 
Ask yourself, is that me? Do I feed on Jesus in terms of what the metaphor means? Is it my passion to, to be satiated, satisfied in him? Not just the effects of the gospel. That's great. Yeah, we should worship and praise and thank him for the effects of the gospel, the effects of the death and the resurrection of Christ. But what about feeding on him? What about truly enjoying him? That's the idea. Yeah, you got to get the gospel right. And certainly there are those who have an emotional, sensationalized relationship with someone named Jesus, but it's not the Jesus of the Bible. And you could look at that person and say, wow, that guy's feeding on Jesus. He's worshiping. He is so into it. He's so emotional when we sing. And he might not even be redeemed. So it's critical that we understand both sides of this that we're resting in the Christ whose atonement was sufficient to satisfy the wrath of God, but also that we are enamored with his person. Does that happen? Do you turn off when we start singing? Is it, you know, you just want to hear the preaching? And, and maybe that would be the case in the early moments of your salvific experience, the early days of your Christian faith. But that ought to be changing increasingly. And you've got a huge opportunity here in our church because the music is so richly, deeply theological and couched in excellent music, instrumentation, singing. So again, this morning, we're going to see the contrast between those who feed on Jesus and those who do not. Why? There's always a point to the so that statement that we draw out of the passage. It's not me, you know, getting some idea. I'll find a passage that fits this. No, we're drawing that out of the passage itself. What did the Lord intend for us? What's the so that? What's the point? What's the purpose? What should be our goal? So that you will find your sustenance in him and enjoy eternal life with him. That's a two-pronged so that, right? Obviously, you want to know whether or not you're in the faith. You want to know whether or not you have eternal life. You can know that. Again, that's the theme. That's the point of the book. You can know that you have life. These things are written for that purpose. That's why John was written. He says that at the end of the book people who say, well, you know, different interpretations, everybody's got different ideas. John says you can know, and it's in writing. But the other reality here, especially in the context of this bread illustration, is that you would worship him in spirit and truth. You'd enjoy him. That's really the idea. That's the Westminster Catechism, right? That you would glorify God and enjoy him forever. How many people do you know who really, really enjoy the Lord? On the other hand, how many people do you know who are really religious but don't seem like the whole religious thing is really a joy? The joy for them is in beating other people up with their religion, but not really a, an exuberant experience. It needs to be an exuberant experience. You check your heart. You check your life. Think it through. Do you enjoy Jesus? 
Point number one. Jesus explains the contrast between earthly sustenance and eternal sustenance or spiritual food. He explains this contrast in verses 49 to 51. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. I mean, that's pretty clear. The bread that I'm talking about is not the bread that you ate last week when I produced it from a handful of loaves. It's not that bread. And you remember that the masses were longing for that bread. They had gotten past the point of so much ecstasy over the signs and the miracles, and now they're just saying, hey, this is my my meal ticket. So they wanted him to produce food. If you go back to Numbers 11, verse 4, now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. The rabble is children, young people, expressing their confused interest in being fed. The people of Israel, they wept. Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Talk about ingratitude. While he's doing something for them, they're showing their ingratitude, showing their hatred. Deuteronomy 8, 16 says, Who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end? Just as Naomi spoke of this morning from Hebrews, God disciplines those he loves. He says, in the moment it's painful, but it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. God providing everything for them and their willingness to show their ingratitude. Well, again, in our text this morning, Jesus is exposing this contrast between earthly food or earthly sustenance and eternal spiritual sustenance. So he points back to the Israelites while they were being provided physical sustenance in literal bread or manna, they rejected the spiritual sustenance of manna from heaven because they rejected what God gave them, or really they showed ingratitude for what God gave them in that physical expression of his kindness, they rejected the spiritual blessing that would have come along with it. So God did not grant them entrance into the promised land for that and other reasons. Listen to this from Hebrews 9 then. Hebrews 9, verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. 
Of these things we cannot now speak in detail, nor can you and I. In other words, we don't understand the fullness of all that was going on with everything related to the rituals given to the people of Israel. But we know that the manna held a special place in the relationship between God and his people such that manna was kept in the ark. The manna represented God's willingness to provide sustenance. And so they kept it, and they kept it in a safe place. In verse 50 in our text, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that no one may eat of it and die. As special and symbolically important as the physical manna was, that it was kept in the ark to be protected, to be a reminder of God's provision, a willingness to grant physical sustenance. When they ate it, they died. It only provided temporary earthly sustenance in the same way that the loaves that Jesus multiplied many, many times over only provided earthly sustenance. It was good. It was a blessing. It probably was the best bread man has ever known. You can be certain it was flawless. It bypassed the fall. It would have been amazing bread. Who wouldn't have wanted more and more and more? But in the same way that the Old Testament Israelites ate the manna and died, the people who ate the bread that Jesus miraculously produced, those people died. Not this bread. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. Now you can see the what you might even call intentional confusion on the part of the Jews at this moment. So he says, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. I am that bread. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. You might think back to verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 38, for I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This is a present active, ongoing reality in the heart and life of the person who genuinely rests in and progressively, increasingly consumes the person of Christ. He finds his satisfaction in him. He says, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. What? The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The life of the world? So let's take a second and talk about what he doesn't mean. Certainly, he's not saying that every single person in the world will experience the everlasting reality of this bread, right? Narrow is the path. And few are those who find it. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. When you see this, you should always think Revelation 5. 
you should always remember that there will certainly be those from every tribe, tongue, and nation throughout the world. There will be representation from every tribe throughout the whole world worshiping the Lamb. But by no means will every single person in the world experience the fullness or really even a smattering, really even a taste of this eternal bread that would result in eternal life. So easy for those who want a universal atonement and even for those who want an indefinite atonement to say that world means every single person in the world. But clearly here it does not. But this matter of the bread, as I said earlier, is a metaphor. I am bread. Well, Jesus is not bread. He's not a door. He's not a vine. He's not a resurrection. It's a metaphor to say he is something that he literally is not, but figuratively is. It doesn't diminish the power of the theology. It illustrates the power of of the theology, but for the person who hyper focuses on the illustration, what he's trying to do is eliminate the significance or reject the truth of the truth. So, as I said earlier, it's easy for him to attack the figure of speech. This figure of speech is a stumbling block. Now, let's acknowledge something else here. This has nothing to do with the Lord's table. That's not what he's talking about. He's not instituting the Lord's table here. Certainly there's symbology that's very similar, but this has nothing to do with the Lord's table. Your Roman Catholic friends and some of you who were Roman Catholic remember the days when you thought, or at least you wanted to believe what people were telling you, that somehow that bread is literally the flesh of Jesus Christ. Anybody remember hearing that before and thinking, huh, Okay, uh, hmm, smart guy, uh, wearing a robe, you know, must know what he's talking about. Um, okay, all right, doesn't look like flesh to me, it looks like bread, but okay. And so that's the way Roman Catholicism works. You just have to believe things that make no sense at all. Bottom line. Now, there's a whole lot more to it than that, but you can tell your friends that if you want. I don't care. It's true. The Lord's Supper took place before the crucifixion. Catholics want you to believe, and they want to believe, that the Lord's Supper is a reenactment of the sacrifice. How can something be a reenactment of the sacrifice when it takes place before the sacrifice? So that's one big problem. Catholics want the Lord's Supper to be a sacrifice of Christ. In the Mass, they would say that it is a sacrifice. They say he is re-sacrificed. But Hebrews tells us that he died once for all. Once for all. Meaning, once for all time. Obviously not for all people. If he died for all people, then all people would be redeemed. Otherwise, you believe in a non-efficacious death. You believe that his death was a gamble, that he died for everyone but didn't save anybody, but it's dependent upon man in his unregenerate state to make himself regenerate to choose Christ, 
you're really wrestling with, kind of toying with a universal atonement. We believe that the death of Christ was, in fact, one time efficacious for all time. Makes no sense to say that this is a re-sacrifice. The Word of God never calls for another sacrifice. There's no need for another sacrifice. They will say that righteousness and grace are infused in the Mass, that somehow righteousness is sort of poured into your soul, and now you uh, have your own righteousness, and that righteousness is you, it's yours. You know? But no, you have the righteousness of Christ, and it's not infused. It's legally declared. It's imputed. It's a legal declaration of God, and yet you know that you still harbor unrighteousness in you. See, that's you. The righteousness of Christ is Christ in you. And that righteousness is what God sees when he looks at us. And atonement comes by faith, not by a ceremony. Right? It's not by the mass. But again, those of you who are Roman Catholic, you know, you're getting awful feelings from when you were a child, and you were told that atonement was actually happening in the moment. So you needed to really believe in this idea that Jesus was re-dying for you in the moment, and that the sacrifice that was taking place in the bread being the actual flesh that you were about to partake of. It's so weird, but you're going, i got to believe this because I know my sin is bad. I need to trust in this, and it, again, it's just nonsense. Atonement comes by faith. It comes by faith, not by a ceremony. Hebrews 10, verse 10 says, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. There was no ultimate atonement in the priest's sacrifices in the Old Testament era nor in the beginning of the New Testament era. At no time was atonement actually taking place. Atonement was applied through obedience. The Old Testament saint who trusted in the coming Lamb, trusted in the Messiah, about whom he knew very little detail, but he trusted in the Messiah and the accomplished work of the Messiah, knowing that it would be sufficient. And so atonement was applied. But it was never achieved by the priest's daily acts of sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews is so helpful to us, so helpful to clear up the nonsense of Roman Catholicism. It says... Uh, they can never take away sins. Verse 12. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Those who are cleansed by what? By the sacrifice. Atonement is applied through and in the sacrifice. The atonement actually applies to everyone for whom Christ died. 
But the Roman Catholic idea that it somehow literally, mystically, idolatrously becomes actual flesh is really cut off at the past back in Leviticus 17. Verse 14, For as for the life of all flesh, its blood is identified with its life. Therefore I said to the sons of Israel, You are not to eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh as its blood Whoever eats it shall be cut off. Tell that to your Roman Catholic friend. Brothers and sisters, it is so important that you and I understand this for the sake of their eternal souls, that you and I would be legitimately equipped to understand what the Lord is talking about and what he's not talking about when he refers to himself as the flesh which you must eat. You would think this is easy, right? Because it's obviously a metaphor, but it's not easy when you're attempting to minister to somebody who is so lifelong, completely entrenched in the idolatry of Mary, the idolatry of the mass, the idolatry of the bishop, the priest, the nun, the false doctrine of infusion of grace and righteousness by works and faith. Somebody who's steeped in that, it's one thing when, you know, they don't really care. But for the person for whom it's become an emotional prize, well, this is what my mom believed. This is what my grandparents always taught. It's what they believe. Well, let's talk about your soul. Look with me in Matthew 26, 26. We'll move on to our next point after this. Matthew 26, 26. This is the institution of the Lord's table. This is, this is the Lord's table, not John 6. Matthew 26, 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat this, my body. This is the Lord's table. Okay? And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So we will enjoy the Lord's table with Jesus in the millennium. We'll be spared from the tribulation. We will be with him and we will be brought back for a thousand years to reign with him and enjoy remembering him with him. Is that that unbelievable? Is that amazing? We're going to literally be with him, enjoying the reality of the bread and the cup. It's just mind-boggling. Just as the apostles did, just as the disciples sat with him, he said, take, eat this, my body. Now watch this. They didn't eat his body. They didn't drink his blood. There was no transformation. There's nothing in this or any of the other texts that would indicate that the bread literally becomes flesh. It's completely Roman. There's no indication that the wine became anything other than wine. The idea that the wine became blood is completely Roman, Roman Catholic. 
So again, you see this contrast, and that's the whole point of just these few verses here. There's a contrast. It's simple. <laughs> Jesus ought to be able to say, okay, I'm going to use a metaphor, figure speech, to speak of that which is forever, and I'm going to use the same terminology to, use, uh, to reference something that's not a metaphor. It's the reality, meaning you've got earthly bread that you consume and, you know, and you'll still die. But I've got eternal bread, this is the metaphor, and you eat that, oh, it's my flesh, but it's a metaphor, it's a figure of speech, and if you do, though, you'll live forever. You'd think, isn't that enough? No, because the masses, as you know, wanted signs. They also wanted that perfect bread to be able to keep eating it. So we see the contrast. Jesus explains the contrast between earthly sustenance and eternal sustenance in him. Point number two, Jesus explains the condition of lifelessness of the Jews who do not find their sustenance in him. Verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're not willing to address it with him. I think they know how that would go. So they banter over it. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. You have no life in you. And as you have conversations, and I, as I have conversations with people who have no life in them, we must tell them that. We must be willing to use such metaphors that are a stumbling block. What? Cannibalism? How dare you tell me to eat literal flesh? Well, they chose the term flesh. Did you notice that? They chose that term. He hadn't used that term yet. They choose that term, and he says, okay, you want to use that term? I'll use that term. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You must eat my flesh. And if you don't, and if you don't drink my blood, you're dead. Yeah, I'm not saying you're going to die. I'm saying you're dead. I'm saying you are dead in your sins. You have no life. He's already told them multiple times, you do not have the Father. Can you imagine that? The Jews, the chosen race, don't have the Father who chose the chosen race? Yeah, you don't have the Father. That's why you hate me. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. This is a response to that reality, that he would lay down his life for his friends. He's saying to them, embrace my coming death. I don't have to tell you again, but let's go ahead and say it. He's not talking about eating literal flesh, but he is talking about consuming it. He's talking about consuming him, devouring him, being satiated by and in him, being satisfied with the person of Christ. Be careful, though. Be careful that this isn't some sort of emotional, ecstatic experience in and of itself. Please understand the difference. 
please, I beg you, understand the difference. That this isn't some Hillsong type experience where you just kind of sing a lot of nonsense and occasionally throw in some theology and it feels great because the music is so powerful. Please don't let it be that because that's not real. That's not real. What's real is the reality that your Savior gave his life for you. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. Right? The wrath of the Father. Think of it. The cup of wrath. The cup of wrath that a, a king would require some to drink, someone to drink in his presence so he could actually watch him die. That was the punishment, that there would be a public death for sins against the king. Here the father pours that wrath down the, down the throat of his son so that his wrath would be fully and completely satisfied. That's how he loves you. It is a legitimate, efficacious, atoning sacrifice. And the father is fully satisfied in that. It pleased God to crush him. It pleased God to crush his son. And in crushing his son, his wrath is fully satisfied. And so Jesus says, eat of my flesh, drink of my blood. In other places, he says, remember me, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about being consumed with the person of Christ for who he is and what he's done. That your life would be daily saturated with a pursuit of him. Point number three, Jesus explains the confidence of eternal life for all who find their sustenance in him. Verse 31, right? These things have been written. Be honest for a minute, and I'm not asking you to say anything out loud this time, but be honest for a minute. When you are most confused, when you are most discouraged, you're most frustrated, <laughs> you are closest to giving up in those moments. Where's your confidence? Or ask it this way. Why is your confidence not where it should be? You have found momentary fleeting confidence in money, or possessions, or relationships. But you have found that confidence to be fleeting because something interrupted it in a powerful way one time or a few hundred so in those moments, where is your confidence? Jesus would have you remember that your confidence of eternal life is in the written word. Now, 
I'm, I'm like you, I think, you know, most humans and maybe most Christians especially are not only delighted in but hungry for that emotional experience with Jesus. And I think that we should be. But you can't count on that. But your Bible doesn't change. The Word doesn't change. You say, wait a minute, I don't see him saying anything about the Word. No, he's not. But what you're seeing is the Word. Why do you know what you know about Jesus? Because it's in your Bible. And I, I really urge you, if you weren't here for Brad's session on bibliology this last week, either Wednesday night or Saturday morning, you absolutely must listen to the recording and go through that either you know, by yourself or hopefully with someone. You, you, know, you don't want to be that person who says, well, I believe it because it's in the New American Standard. Why do you believe that? Well, because that's the best version. Why is that? Well, because my grandfather... No, no, no. Why do you believe the Bible? Why do you believe the Bible? You've got to know why you believe the Bible. So that when you get to a verse like verse 54 that says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, that you can not only believe yourself in this truth because it's in the Word of God, but that you can confidently and graciously share it with others. You ever get to that place in your efforts to communicate truth with someone else and you realize, man, I don't even know what I'm saying or why I'm saying it? You ought to be able to say this to somebody. You know, the Lord Jesus will raise you up on the last day if you will eat his flesh. But if you don't have confidence in the Scripture because of the sound reasons for having confidence in the Scripture, then at some point that person's going to press you into a corner that you can't get out of. Our confidence of eternal life as a result of spiritual sustenance, eternal food, comes to us because it's in the written word. Verse 55 says, For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. See, that ups the metaphor. That's an implication that something is not true food and something else is not true drink, but my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. So again, he goes back to the contrast. He goes back to pointing out the distinction between those who trust in earthly food and those who trust in eternal food. He says then, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. For a moment, I want to take you back to verse 27. And Jesus says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for that food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. 
the truth of God's word, the veracity of the heart of God as spoken, as written, is displayed in the Son. God the Father has set his seal on his Son. And eternal life comes through him, and it is proven by a person's willingness to be consumed with the person of Christ in not so much of an emotional way, but in a theological way. He genuinely finds himself going back to the atonement, the efficacious death of Christ for forgiveness of sins, and the new life given in the resurrection. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its perfection. We thank you that you are good and kind and gracious to provide it for us, to give us all that we need in order to honor you through it and with it. As we continue to look to you in song, we ask that you might shore up in us any wayward thinking, any thoughts that do not exhibit a legitimate consuming of the person of Christ, but rather some sort of idolatrous view. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.